0: Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Acquis Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media.
1: Well, Welcome to this Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Acris Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson, joined by my good friend, David Buick. Hello there, David. Morning to you, Squire. And this morning we're joined by a lot of descriptions really about this. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for a distinguished broadcast journalist who's been through a lot of quite stormy times, both on what she's reported on and certainly in her career as well. Let's start right at the very beginning, can we? Why did you choose journalism or did it did it choose you? What was it all about?
2: Yes, it was probably that we both chose each other. My my parents always said to me, journalists are people who know a little bit about everything but nothing about, they don't know a lot about anything. So um, I thought, well, that probably suits me because I, I wasn't an incredibly brilliant student. Although I did come out of university with a first, but that was a huge surprise to everybody. But I went into it very naively and probably through my entire career as a journalist, I felt a bit... Like a fraud, a bit like one of those evil in war characters wandering around, imposter syndrome, pretending to be a journalist, not really know what, knowing what I was doing.
1: I mean, that's what it's all about, though, isn't it? I mean, you, you have <laughs> to go into you have to go into interviews. You have to you meet. Sometimes these people are your heroes. Sometimes they aren't. They're very important people. A lot of the time, you have to go in. If you don't go in with confidence, then you've lost the floor, haven't you? And I think that that's quite an achievement, you know, in any in any in any walk of life, to be able to hold the room, if you like. I mean, that's very important. It's a very important part of you, which I'm sure you have. You look as though you have.
2: Well, it's the yes. There's the one path which is fake it till you make it, and uh, you can actually come a cropper very badly by trying to pretend to be cleverer than you are. But I had a very brilliant editor once who was um, terrifying to many people. And uh, he started meetings with the words, I'm stupid, explain to me. And of course we all knew he wasn't stupid, but it was a very good way of getting somebody to set out
1: the story. Simple is is the most difficult thing, isn't it? No no, no question about that.
0: Stunning. Alec, I just want to move on because you actually went in with an incredibly bright bunch of people as intakes. Kevin Marsh went on, so I think, to understand, to edit the Today programme at the time of the dodgy dossier. And then you had Malcolm Ballon, Nigel Dacre, Paul Paul Dacre's brother. What was it like with them? Did you have much association with them? And then take us through into Belfast because that's really, as I understand it, when your career took off.
2: There was a very good atmosphere. We went on on various trips and we went through the training together. The most acerbic and the most prickly of all was Kevin, who I think made a career out of that. Yeah. Uh, He completely uh, took me by surprise. He was, from what I understood, a working class Tory from Doncaster, from grammar school. And he had complete disdain for the sort of wishy-washy liberals that had been taken into the training scheme. Um, He wasn't like that. He uh, had a much cooler attitude to the world and uh, was actually, you know, of, of all of us, probably the most difficult one. I never actually worked with him because he went on to work at ITN and then came back to the BBC later. I went to Belfast as my, I went on attachment, but then I was invited by them to stay. They made me feel very welcome, even though, again, I knew very little about the history and about the troubles. I really had to learn fast. And in fact, that's where my parents believed that journalists know uh, little about a lot. Um, I, I really did have to get up to speed and uh, what had happened in Belfast very, very fast. But they were very uh, kind, and very welcoming, which astonished me. I thought there would be a lot of disdain for people like me who came into such a complicated scenario without probably adequate preparation. But when I was there, I had very good training because I was put on the morning radio show. So I was out and about all driving around the country. We had absolutely no compliance, no health and safety no uh, hostile environments, training, we were just expected to get into the car and drive to Fermanagh or drive to some far off place. And um, I had the time of my life because I did exactly that. And after a year, I went onto the spotlight program, which is TV and made a few films there. And then um, in the course of my sort of driving around because I just, loved serendipity in Northern Ireland, because when you, if you drove around, you found a story. And you know, I remember one time I went to uh, a place in, in Fermanagh and I was in a pub and they saw me with my tape recorder and they said, I'll take you to the widow of a, uh, or the mother of a, a UDR man who's just been killed and you can do an interview with her and so on. People would invite you in, It wasn't. it never felt dangerous And in the course of these travels, I came across a a photograph of a children's football team, 15 year old boys. And somebody showed me the picture and said, this was a, a mixed football team of Catholics and Protestants from a mixed housing estate which by then wasn't mixed anymore, but at that time had been started as a utopian project, a housing estate with Catholics and Protestants together. And they were all in this football team, it was called the Star of the Sea. And uh, the one at the centre was Bobby Sands, age 15. And by the time this photograph was being shown to me, Bobby Sands was dead. It was 1982. I proposed a film that would be around where are they now all these people who are in the same team as him and we found them and we tracked them down and we interviewed them and it turned into a film for bbc2 called old scores and i mean the great stroke of luck was that northern ireland had qualified for the world cup that year so when i knocked on doors to see if i could find these guys they were all there watching tv
0: fantastic fantastic michael come on in
1: I that, that's that's really interesting. I, I I love the fact that you were able. You didn't get surrounded by, get sucked in by what on earth was going on there. Because many of us on the mainland here had got no idea either. And it's good often to go to places and ask questions from ignorance without being ashamed of it, which is good. But I I want to I want to push you on, if I may, to the Berlin Wall and and to Eastern Europe, and given your nationality, your original nationality, and all the rest of it, must have been a very, very fascinating time. I was called into the studio about three o'clock in the morning, and the wall came down, and this halfwit from the United States, that of course is very much misquoted now, said, of course, this is the end of history. Well, it wasn't, was it? But at the time, at the time, it must have seen, mustn't it? Of all, I mean, apart, we, we look at it now, and we think, don't we, all the old certainties of the Cold War, were about to disappear, and that threw people into an enormous amount of confusion. What was what was your experience of it? Because I, I know that you you felt as though, going back to Gdansk, for example, you could just knock on doors and people would be pleased to see you, and they weren't.
0: And could we know also what Le- Verwenza was like as well? Sorry to interrupt. Uh,
2: well, the, the Berlin Wall was 89, and that was just me getting very lucky and being there as a witness to history as it was changing. And I pretty well think I was the first journalist on the wall because there were very few people there and the the soldiers were still guarding it from the Eastern side and with guns. And the only thing was that you could walk past them and they didn't shoot you. And I saw a couple of people do this and did it myself and got up on the wall, but I had no mobile phone. I had no camera on me. And uh, the producer I was with ran back to the office to try and find the uh, crew who'd gone to bed that night. So then a, 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 a cameraman for news and you know, there's massive rivalry between news night and news turned up and um, I asked him if he would film me on the wall and he said, no, where's your effing crew? You, you know, you, you get your own crew to film you. And I said, well, you're now my effing crew and, you know, begrudgingly he did and I did a piece to camera on the wall, but the, war, the that was incredible. I mean, I stayed on the wall for a couple of hours that night. I mean, it was unbelievable to me that it was happening and eventually went home and from the hotel room managed to phone my parents who had um, uh, obviously come from Poland and who'd lived through the war and the Cold War and, um, you know, very proud to say that, you know, I too had uh, somehow been a witness of history. But. The uh, the story of Poland was before that. It was uh, towards the end of martial law when, um, uh, you know, um, there'd been a, a, a fear that the Soviets would invade Poland because Poles were getting a bit uppity and the uh, uh, president of Poland declared martial law supposedly to To protect the nation that was his defense he's dead now but in every interview afterwards he always said if i hadn't declared martial law the soviets would invade it so i did it as a patriotic act i mean a lot of people didn't agree with him i went there as a young woman i was quite heavily pregnant with my first child very confident uh, bizarrely overconfident really my father said oh you will be seen as a blessed a blessed person but actually i was treated with great suspicion nobody really knew what I was really about. They thought possibly I was a spy for the uh, secret services. I spoke Polish and um, uh, my father had given me a bag full of paints to take for an artist colleague. My father was an artist and he'd heard that under martial law paints were in very short supply and art students had no paints to paint with so he gave me this gift and when I turned up at this man's house he looked at me in complete bewilderment he couldn't understand what all this was about why had I come his wife was in a complete panic and she kept storming into the room and saying um you know you've got to go to this appointment you've got to pick up your daughter and eventually you know I, I realized I had to leave and I think they were just terrified because at that point there was an enormous amount of government surveillance and uh, they were frightened they'd get into trouble. So, you know, I was walking a kind of innocent abroad. It pretty well threw me out into the pouring rain in the suburbs of Warsaw. And it took me hours to find my way back because there were no taxis. There was no way of um, of getting back to my hotel room. So they they weren't particularly, didn't treat me as a blessed person. They were, but, you know, when people are frightened, they behave that way. Mm-hmm. I didn't really blame them. I didn't take it personally. I just put it down to my uh, not really fully understanding what it's like to live under an oppressive regime.
1: David, oh. is, D- David is aching to ask you about the dodgy dossier. Just before he does that, just to keep things in chronological order, if we may, you then had the great p- privilege of interviewing our lady prime minister. Yes.
2: Oh, yeah. A, just...
1: Much to the annoyance of your colleagues because you got what we used to call in the trade as a bit of a scoop, have not you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I mean uh that that was in April 1984. And <clears throat> I, I can remember all these dates because I n- remember just exactly how pregnant I was at th- that time. So I just found out that I was pregnant with my first child, so it was before the martial law trip. I went to on this trip to Portugal with a press corps. I've never done that before, and I've never done it since. So again, I was completely new to all the customs of of these trips. I um, had been told by the Today Programme had sent me to try and get an interview with Margaret Thatcher. So I, you know, wheedled and cajoled and smiled as prettily as I could at Bernard Ingham. And the night before, he said to me late that night, come here, you know, crack of dawn tomorrow to the uh, ambassador's residence in Lisbon and you'll get a, an interview with the Prime Minister.
0: Was Was him. Robin Oakley around at that time, Elenka or not?
2: He, uh, no, I think possibly he came a bit later. But Was
0: it coal then? Was it cold then?
2: Oh, yes, I think it was. It was. Yes, it was coal. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't involved with the political correspondence and I wasn't part of that news outfit. I was in current affairs, which is always been a bit left of the center. Anyway, um, I went, I I was told that night that I would, just to put in a bit of context, there was, um, uh, there had been an attack on Yvonne Fletcher outside the Libyan embassy. And there was what was known at that time as a siege outside the Libyan embassy. So we had this terrorist crisis, we had this massive problem and um, it was slightly strange that Thatcher was away. She wasn't there. So when we did the interview, her main line was, Leon's in charge, Leon Britain, he can handle it, everything's fine, we will resolve the situation. Obviously, it wasn't a great resolution because the killers went free um, and the the, the long negotiation had to be had, but this was possibly her way of of dodging that, but we didn't really know at that point. Anyway, the next uh, day, uh, I, I got up early, did the interview, turned it round into a radio car and sent it down the line and it aired that morning, today we were very pleased and were sort of thrilled that they got this exclusive, which I guess they didn't expect to get. But when I got back in with the press corps, uh, I got a lot of nasty looks and frowns from um, my colleagues. Uh, you know, one of them said to me, actually, particularly in the BBC, you should have pulled that with all of us, you should have shared it with us and actually television being the sort of senior partner is the one that should have got the interview and you sort of let us down. And again, I, I I didn't really know what to say. And there was one very kind journalist sitting next to me on the bus as all this was being said. And he very said,
0: unlikely person, if I remember as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yes, it was it was Peter Hitchens who said, you know, don't listen to them. Don't, don't, you, you've, you got an exclusive, you got a scoop, you know, they're just sort of pissed off with you. But you know, mark it up as one of your. Successes, so um, I didn't really Good for him. know very, him very well at, at that point. But you know, I, um, I I've always been grateful to him for that. But
0: yeah. this coincides, doesn't it, with the fact that when you were pregnant with your first, uh, the BBC tried to show you the door, thinking that uh, female employees were not that reliable. And from then, of course, your career expanded very well. Just take us through that period before we get on to. What I call sort of perhaps the, the, the hairier side of life. but
2: It marked the end of an era. It was when I came back after having my first child, and uh, the deputy editor of the Today programme, who was in charge and hoped to get the job, said, Pulled me in and said, Look, we won't be renewing your contract. I mean, I was on six month or, or year, yearly contracts. And I said, um, Why not? And he said, Because women who've had children are not as committed and that's just the way we do things and it was true i don't think any woman in the radio sequences had ever continued working after having a child and i was sort of appalled i i, I remember thinking this is illegal because th- there were already employment laws that oh, the work right prevented people from speaking like that but of course uh, I wasn't going to, you know, I didn't, wasn't thinking I would sue him. Anyway, I went around to all the duty editors on today and said to them, uh, have I shown any lack of commitment? Can you tell me how uh, I'm doing in your own opinion? And they all were very supportive. I was, I was very hardworking. I remember my my husband was absolutely furious at the hours I would spend on the Today programme having come at 10 o'clock in the morning and you'd still be editing a tape for the morning sh- show at two or three o'clock in the morning. And there was a small child at home and he, he actually was incredibly patient with the, the schedule that I had to keep to because if you didn't produce a piece for the morning then you really would have been out. They all rallied round me. And then the editor came back who was a very venerable editor of um, Today programme. He actually hired me, Julian Holland, but he had another few months on the program. And I explained to him that I'd been told my contract wouldn't be renewed because of having had Joe. And um, he just uh, said, I'll get back to you and came back to me with a new contract and a big pay rise. And uh, I I was uh, incredibly pleased basically because I think the lesson I learned was if you stand your ground and you fight, you can win. I mean, the man who said this to me, when, when he said, you know, you won't, you, I won't renew your contract, and I sort of started to argue with him, his first words were, that's so typical of you. You know, you just have to argue about everything. And I thought, well, firstly, I'm employed to be awkward. I'm supposed to be part of the awkward squad. That's what journalists are meant to be. But secondly, I haven't actually been arguing very much. I'm just arguing about this one thing Anyway, um, he went on not to get the job. Jenny Abramsky was then appointed. And uh, it changed everything once there was a woman editor for the first, you know, of the sequences.
0: Mm. The meaty stuff that you did, I mean, whether it was the Israeli secret weapons, access to evil about North Korea, diamonds, you know, the killer paradise. And then the one that, of course, the last one you did, which I think was probably the most controversial, being up to date, was this breaking the silence, the clerical issue in Northern Ireland well, in Ireland, not Northern Ireland, I mean, they were amazing subjects and they never really quite, as you say, got the accolade that they should
2: No, I mean, I suppose um, the, 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 the clerical abuse story was actually in England, in Leicestershire and Tanzania. It was a school, uh, an order of, of monks that had had these schools that were affiliated. And the abuse there was pretty horrible, but it came, I suppose, in a wave of clerical abuse stories. And by the time it came to air, it was in a sense, just another clerical abuse story. So I don't, I'm not hugely surprised about that. Um, I think the ones that, um, the ones that, that my favorite film is the one about counterfeit medicine, counterfeit drugs in Nigeria and India, and that's also disappeared. Most important films, I think, were The Killing of Women in Pakistan, because they've since been buried, and they were highly controversial, and they were absolutely heartbreaking when you saw how cheaply women's lives were regarded. I mean girls would be born, their births wouldn't be registered, they would live in a house where they're not allowed to go outside. If they went outside, they had to be covered, so nobody recognised them, knew who they were, nobody knew if one of them was missing, and then if they were murdered, nobody knew that either, because they had never really existed. And to be, to have a child brought up in that atmosphere, in that kind of culture, where your girl daughter's life is so little protected by law. And if a man were to kill a girl, uh, basically various mechanisms within the Sharia law would protect that killer. And there would be no prison sentence, no uh, prosecution, nothing. That seemed to me to be government and state-sponsored, legitimization of the murder of women and girls. It was um, for me a shock when I found out about it and was working on it. And it took me some years to recover from it because nobody believed me afterwards. (laughs) People were in denial about that and they still are to some degree. It still exists in Pakistan. Everything we've heard about the atrocities by the Taliban All of that was going on in Pakistan in, you know, not just tribal areas and primitive poor areas, but in the capital, you know, one of the characters in our films was a um, businessman who traded in uh, pharmaceuticals and who killed his own daughter. He had his own daughter killed in her lawyer's offices. And another one was a 14-year-old boy who was in his cricket whites, who was explaining to us why he had to kill his mother, even though he loved her and he misses her now, because the elders of the village said that he had to because she was dishonoring everybody by leaving the house without permission.
0: It's a a few years now since this was made and as we have to conclude this lovely interview, which we've enjoyed thoroughly, did that very controversial film get the, the exposure that it deserved?
2: Well, there were two of them. And they did in the sense that they were shown uh, in uh, the 1999 and 2000, one year after another, I think. They won a lot of awards uh, internationally um, and they won a Peabody and an Amnesty Award and um, mm. a Hawk Award and various awards. So they were recognized internationally but a few years later, um, I remember going to some uh, seminar about editorial values, and it, a clip was played from one of them. They didn't realise I was there, probably, to ask the question whether this was the right way to deal with a problem of this kind. And it was a it was a seminar on Islamophobia, and it was used as an example of how not to tell a story now. So I. You- you know, I couldn't, made, I couldn't make that film now. I, when I wanted to make a follow up in Britain of Murder in Perda, um, uh, in the end, I was told, we, if we made that film, we would only have a reporter with Pakistani origin doing it. And um, I, uh, you know, I, I wasn't gonna be the person to do it. So I didn't, I went on and did something else. And that was a, that's another trend I have observed over the years, that when I started as a reporter, as a journalist, the n- number one uh, priority was to be impartial. Whatever baggage you came with, whether you were uh, black or white or Jewish or not Jewish or this or that, you pared all that away so that your editorial values were as impartial and as unbiased as you could make them. As uh, time went on, that value went away. The impartial reporter was began to be seen as a myth and reporters were expected to be partial in a way and declare their partiality. So um, when I made um, Israel's secret weapon and somebody came to the office and said, it's one of Peabody, um, another reporter who was there with me uh, said oh are you Jewish and I looked at him and said well where I come from that's an impertinent question I, you know I don't know you you why are you asking me that he said oh because you know if you're Jewish I think you can make a film in Israel but if you're not you really shouldn't and I said well you didn't say that in South Africa about you know all the British eminent reporters who made films in South Africa why do you have to have skin in the game now why is is that the case and that's just generally a trend people people seem to think that now and i kind of uh, couldn't play that game i'm i i can not go into reporting something and uh, say oh it's because of my family or because of this or because of that
0: the language has been fabulous thank you very much indeed You're absolutely wonderful
2: no it's a pleasure i hope you can cut some sense out of all of that of
1: course we can yeah thank you thank you very much and it's been absolute a joy to talk to you thank you
2: oh pleasure to talk to you too i really enjoyed it thanks a lot